Bibles there, or if you have your own Bible. I'll give you an, a moment to find that. So it's Romans chapter 6. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be with you all this morning. Before we dive into God's word very briefly, because I know that I haven't had the chance of meeting some of you yet, my name is Eric. Um, Soon, uh, Elizabeth, my wife, and I and our three kids will um, be out here. Um, I'll be serving as pastor here, but um, that's a little more than a month away. So if you are visiting here or if I haven't had the chance to meet you here, it is wonderful. And know that while we're parachuting in this time, soon we will be around more um, and look forward to getting the chance to meeting all of you. Um, That said, let's pray as we prepare to look at God's word. Great God and Father, Lord of peace, who rose Jesus Christ from the dead. We give thanks this morning to you for your great work of salvation on our behalf and pray that you might speak to us as we reflect upon the resurrection. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, shaping us and growing us, and be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. So Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, Um, (laughs) y'all. That truth is the thing that we celebrate every Easter, um, the resurrection. And every Easter, as we come to that event, I feel this kind of tension as we get ready to, to talk about it together, because that can seem so crazy and so hard to believe um, to certain people that the temptation is just to spend this morning trying to convince you that it's true, that it's a historical fact. Um, but I'm not going to do that. Right? Even though I'm tempted, for example, to talk about how, how well-supported the resurrection is, is this historical event, to point out that the authors of the Gospels are all men who are eyewitnesses of the things that happened, that Paul in 1 Corinthians, um, just 15 years after the resurrection, reminds these people of hundreds of people that they can talk to who witnessed the risen Lord, which wouldn't make any sense if they didn't actually exist, that even, even secular historians like Josephus talk about the resurrection. I'm tempted to talk about all of that, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, or I'd be tempted to, to preach about how unexpected the claim of the resurrection is to first century Jews and how it's impossible to explain where that idea came from, that the Messiah was supposed to be raised from the dead when basically none of the people in the world around them believed it. And how even if they invented this crazy idea, it would make no sense for Jesus' disciples to then go on and suffer persecution and torture and death insisting upon it. 
That while people might come up with lies that make their lives easier that they believe in, people aren't prone to coming up with lies that get them killed, insisting upon the lies all the way. But we're not going to talk about that this morning either. I could even spend this morning talking about how ridiculous it is to try to come up with a way that, to explain Jesus somehow surviving the cross. How, how crazy it is to say that after bleeding out and suffocating for six hours and then being stabbed through the heart with a spear and examined by a Roman soldier who killed people professionally, he somehow wasn't dead and got up and pushed away a two-ton stone and overpowered dozens of guards so that people thought that he was. Or how crazy it would be to think that he's still in the tomb um, when all of these religious leaders and secular authorities that knew where he was buried and had a vested interest in proving that he wasn't raised could have just gone and gotten the body, but none of them did. But we're not going to talk about that this morning either. I'm tempted to spend, talk about all, to spend time talking about that, but we're not. Not because that isn't all good and true. It is. But because you can say all of the stuff that that I just said, right? You can, you can say all of that stuff trying to demonstrate that Jesus rose from the dead and, and still miss what Jesus' resurrection is about. That, that this morning we are celebrating something that is a historical fact, yes, but it's not just a historical fact, not just like Caesar crossing the Rubicon or Columbus sailing the blue in 1492. What we are celebrating, it is in, instead sort of the historical fact, the central event of human history and of our stories. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so while that happened, and while it's important for us to believe that and talk about it, and while it does stand as this proof of this claims of his divinity, it is also more than that. It is also something that's supposed to connect to our lives today. The resurrection is supposed to mean something for me and you here today. In our text this morning from Romans 6, it's striking how Paul treats Christ's resurrection. It's not something that he says is just true to us that we believe. He somehow sees it as something that is also supposed to be true of us and for us. If we have died with Christ, the Apostle Paul says in verse 6, we believe that we will also live with him. So the resurrection is something that is to be true of us and for us, and not just in the future either. There's that glorious hope of our future resurrection, but in this text from Romans 6, Paul sees the resurrection as something that is somehow to be true for us right now. We are to walk, present tense, in newness of life, he says in verse 4. Or as verse 11 puts it, today we are to, today we are to consider ourselves now dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So how does that work? How is the resurrection, this glorious but distant historical fact, somehow true of me and you today? How is it something that's for us right now? Well, I think that Paul helps us see three realities from our text where the resurrection meets us today. He holds forth Christ's resurrection as our example, Christ's resurrection as our hope, and Christ's resurrection as our power. Our example, our hope, and our power. First, Christ's resurrection is our example. Look at verse 4. Paul, in the first few verses of Romans 6, uses this series of images to try to explain the Christian life for us. 
the series of images. So he starts with this image of baptism, of somehow passing under or through the waters and then coming out the other side. And he ties that with this image of Jesus' work, of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And then he tells us that both of those images connect somehow to what it means for us to be Christians. That somehow in Christianity we are being buried in baptism in Christ's death and that then somehow, just like Christ was raised from the dead, we too are called to live new lives. So when we look at Easter, at Christ's death and resurrection, that is supposed to somehow be a picture for what Christian life looks like. How? Well, I think it works like this for Paul. Paul would say that without Jesus, we are living this one sort of life, right? This, this life of sin and rebellion, a life that we're living for ourselves, he pictures it as like a fleeting life or a half-life or maybe not even life at all. Elsewhere in Ephesians, he talks about this life that we live now as sort of this living death, dead in our sins. And part of what Christ's death means to Paul is that with Jesus, we are dying to this half-life that we have without him. That this is part of what Paul calls us to do in our text, right? Count ourselves dead to sin. He says in verse 11, that is to say we are supposed to recognize that this way of living for ourselves, for rebellion, for sin, that that is something that is no longer supposed to define us or rule over us. We are supposed to look at that way of living and say that that is dead to us, that we aren't supposed to live there anymore. And that idea of dying to sin, that could be a whole sermon in itself, right? But there's another half of the picture for Paul, too, that we are supposed to consider ourselves dead to that first way of living, but that is because that like Jesus' resurrection, we are being called to live a new life, a new kind of life, a life where sin is no longer our master, a life now lived not for ourselves, but for God which sounds simple in some ways, but is really a profound truth. Because in the first place, it means that Christianity is not just meant to be some new ideas or some new spiritual practices or some new rules that we try to follow or avoid doing. It is meant to be a new way of life, a new orientation to living with God at the center. Christianity is not something that you just kind of add on at the edges of your life. It's not like a new handbag that you buy to tie together that old outfit. Christianity is not meant to be accessorizing, but it is meant to be a new skin, finding a new identity, being a new creation. And that's one of the questions that I think Easter confronts us with. In our corner of the world, it can be easy to think of faith as just kind of a relatively minor part of our lives, that I am an American, and there's certain music that I like, and I belong to a certain political party, and I'm a Nebraska Cornhuskers fan, which we're going to have to get used to here, I'm sure. Um, but but, but I, I can say I'm all those things, oh, and I'm a Christian. And we can say that like those things are basically equally significant for us. But Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He lived for 30-some years in the same world, the world defined by all of those other things, by the bands we like and the nation that we live in and the fact that we like or don't like the Nebraska Cornhuskers. And then he died, and then he rose again, and a new world, a new way of living is breaking into our world because of that. 
Later in Romans, Paul pictures this as two sorts of humanities that somehow exist. An old humanity with Adam as its father and sin as its characterizing feature, and a new humanity that begins with the resurrection life of Christ. And that Christianity means somehow moving from one to the other. And look, that doesn't mean that all those things that I just listed aren't somehow true of me still, right? I am still an American. I do still like the football team that I like. Um, But it does mean that those things have to find a new order and take a lesser place of significance because the core of my identity as a Christian is now meant to belong to God. To be a Christian is to allow every other part of my life to be relativized, to hold it with an open hand as I seek to live out the life of the resurrected Lord. So we are being called into a new sort of life. And equally importantly, Paul tells us that this new life is in some crazy sense the reason for what we celebrate this morning, for Christ's death and resurrection. If you look at verse 4 again, Paul tells us that we were buried with Christ in baptism into death in order that we might live a new life. In order that. So why did Jesus die? Well, there's lots of ways to answer that, right? And, and, and it's not that the other ways are wrong. Jesus died out of his great love for us. Jesus died to give glory to his Father. That is all true. But Paul would also say that there's something more. That while Jesus did die out of love and to glorify his Father, he also died in order that we might begin to live new transformed lives resurrected lives, lives of obedience and joy and faith and hope and love. We can struggle sometimes to connect two realities, I think. On the one hand, Christianity is a religion founded on grace. It is. We are welcomed and accepted by Jesus' life and death, not by our obedience. That is true of us at the moment of belief and true today and true the day we die. We are accepted on the basis of nothing but God's gracious love. And trying to make some sort of new life in Christ a way to earn that is to miss the point. But at the same time, we as Christians are called to do stuff, right? (laughs) To do stuff and to not do stuff. And I think that that can sometimes leave us scratching our heads to try to understand how those two realities connect, that we are saved by God's grace alone, that it is grace from first to last, but we are called to changed lives of obedience. And this chapter in Romans, in many ways, is Paul's answer to how that works. This chapter, this picture he gives us, is fundamentally gracious. It is Jesus' death that frees us from the rule of sin and his resurrection that raises us to new life. Not something we do, not something we attain to our, for ourselves. But that grace has a purpose. Christ saves us in order that we can live new lives, lives dedicated to him. The foundation of the gospel is grace. The goal of the gospel is to begin to grow us in obedience and faith. C.S. Lewis says somewhere that Christianity is sort of like being born. On the one hand, he says, birth is just this passive act, right? You don't do anything when you're born. You just, you just come out, right? But at the same time, he says, um, that doesn't mean that there's nothing that you're supposed to do as a result of it. Birth is supposed to result in life. You were born, and now you are alive. And you need to live like it. So Christ's resurrection is our example. It gives us this picture of the new life that we are to live in Christ. 
which is great, but saying that isn't enough. Christ's resurrection is a picture for us, but it's not just, it's not just a beautiful story, right? It's not just a parable about how our lives should work. It is also this thing that actually happened. And that's really important because we can see this picture of new life in Christ and say, that makes sense, that sounds good, but how in the world do I start to live into that? The answer is that Christ's resurrection isn't just a picture for our lives. It is also the foundation and the root of them. Christ's resurrection is also our hope. It's our hope. Look at verse 9. Paul tells us that because Jesus has died and then rose from the dead, that means certain things. It means that death doesn't have power over him more, that death has somehow been beaten. And to get the significance of that, you have to realize that death for Paul, when he talks about it, doesn't just mean that point someday when your heart stops beating or, I don't know, your neurons stop firing in your brain or something. Death um, is more than just physical death for Paul. Instead, it's his way of describing our whole lives and our, our whole world system under sin. We are spiritually dead because of sin. That our sin itself is this thing of death, this violent thing that destroys and kills as we use people and discard them and speak ill of them and demean them in our, in our minds. The ultimate consequence of sin is death for Paul. This world and the sinful systems on it are grounded on death, their power to kill and oppress. So when Paul says that death no longer has mastery because of Jesus' work, he means that Jesus has beaten all of that, spiritual death, and the destruction of sin and a world system founded on it, that all of the darkness and evil in our world and in our hearts was somehow taken on by Jesus, and their power is broken in his death and resurrection. And this defeat of death and sin by Jesus is our hope as we try to live the Christian life. Paul puts it this way in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Our hope is that since Christ has broken the power of death and now lives in glorious resurrection, that so will we. And of course, that reminds us of one of the great promises of Easter, of our own ultimate resurrection, when the sort of promise of Christ's resurrection is completed, that the grave's not the final page, but just a brief interlude, that when Christ returns, our bodies will be raised as well and made perfect, free from the ravages of this broken world, and we will live with Jesus forever. It's about that glorious hope, but it's not just a hope for the end of life either. Um, Look at the conclusion that Paul draws in verse 11. He says that because of all the stuff he said, right now we're supposed to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Present tense. Christ's resurrection isn't just a hope for someday, but a hope for today. How? How? The answer rests in this idea that death and sin have been defeated. Jesus has broken their power. Not that they are ultimately beaten yet and gone um, someday, but that somehow they also have been defeated. That on that Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus punched sin and death and hell and the devil in the face, and that was a mortal wound. And they're beaten, and that's our hope. I mean, how do you think about the struggles in your life? There is a lot that is messed up in the world. 
and a lot that is messed up in my heart. It is easy, if I'm reading the evening news, or if I'm struggling with those same old sins, to feel defeated, to feel like those things are just too big for me to beat. And they are too big for me to beat, but they're not too big for Christ. And more than that, what Paul would say, he has beaten them. It's like this. The Bible pictures the Christian life as a war in various places. A war against our own sinful hearts and against the powers of evil and darkness in the world and against Satan. And so I think we picture Christianity as, I don't know, like those movies about D-Day, right? Like Saving Private Ryan or something, where we're kind of huddled down in this boat ready to poke the giant of Nazi Germany, and we have no idea how it's going to end. We have no idea whether we're going to succeed or fail. But instead, Scripture tells us that the war that we're in is more like, it's more like the Battle of Berlin, okay? Which Unless you know about history, you won't know. But from the name, you can guess. It's April of 1945, and the Allies are on the outskirts of Berlin, Germany, right? And Nazi Germany is crumbling and has been defeated. And if you're down in the trenches in the Battle of Berlin, it can still feel sort of like it did on D-Day, right? You can still be fearful because you know that there's still going to be blood that's shed and work to be done and people that die. But the difference is that now you know that the end isn't in question anymore. That, that Germany has been beaten. There's no way they can recover. Their military and economy and politics are crumbling, and so we know which side is going to win. And Easter reminds us that death is that kind of defeated enemy, that death and sin are beaten. We still live in this in-between time when they're not yet gone, where there is still plenty of blood and tears to be shed before Christ returns and they're finally finished. But all of the blood and all of those tears are the fury of a defeated foe. They're the death throes of the serpent whose head has already been crushed. I love the spirit of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He imagines death as this person, and he talks to it, and he starts to taunt it and make fun of it. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And look, Paul writes that while being persecuted and hunted. He writes that knowing that ultimately he will die, but he writes it nonetheless and taunts death because his hope and ours is that it is an enemy that may rage but cannot win. Jesus won. That morning that he got up from the grave. And that is, in a real sense, the end of the story. None of that means that there aren't painful and hard things in this life. It doesn't mean terrible things won't happen in this world. And it doesn't mean that there still aren't deep areas of my heart that are wrecked by sin. But it means that I can engage in this struggle knowing that their defeat is sure. Because it is already been accomplished. I can fight with the hope knowing that Jesus has won. So Jesus' resurrection is true to me today as an example of the new life that I'm called to lead and as a hope for the victory that he has won. But that said, the struggle is still real, isn't it? When I am confronted by temptation or when I confront the darkness in the world, all of those truths we just said can feel like so many words. Sin still feels big and strong. 
And the empty tomb can feel like it happened a long time ago. Death might be defeated, but it's still a scary thing. And what I love about Paul's discussion of Jesus' resurrection is not just that he wants to teach us how we should live our lives or what our ultimate hope in them is, but he also wants us to understand how we can go on with that struggle. He tells us that Jesus' resurrection is our power. Jesus' resurrection is our power. In verse 5, Paul says one of those things that we can easily just skip past when we read it, but that's actually mind-blowing. He tells us that we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. United with him. And when you notice that, you start to notice these other crazy statements. In verse 6, Paul says that our old self, our old self, was crucified with Jesus. Not, we pretend like it was crucified. It was crucified with him. In verse 7, that we have been, we have been set free from sin. In verse 4, we were buried with Jesus. In verse 8, we died with Christ. Think about all of that for a minute. Paul is saying that somehow in Christ's death and resurrection, things actually happened to me. I actually died to sin. I am actually raised to new life, really, objectively. What does that mean? Well, here's the deal. For Paul, Believers are united with Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes as we trust in him and actually somehow connects us to Jesus, connects us so that these things that are true of Jesus are really true of us and that the resources available to Jesus are somehow available to us as well. In other words, we aren't just following a resurrected Lord. We are in him, in his resurrection. And this means that the resurrection isn't Um, this actual, that in the resurrection, this actual mysterious power is somehow available to us as well. Later in Romans 8.11, Paul puts it this way. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give new life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Just as the Father gives Jesus life to triumph over dead, in Christ, he is giving us life as well. Or in Ephesians 1, Paul prays, the Ephesians may know the greatness of the power God makes available to us. And we wonder, what is that power? Why is it so great? And Paul says, it is the power of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That is a crazy idea. What Paul is saying is that in our struggles today, we have available to us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That whatever cosmic supernatural might it took to re-knit Jesus' broken body and restart his lifeless heart and breathe back, life back into his corpse, that that power is available to us as we confront death and sin in the world. And that is a message that I need to hear. I really think that one of the main ways that the devil and sin beat us is by convincing us that we're inevitably going to lose. They just seem so strong, and we just feel so weak, and so we don't even bother getting up to fight. We just give in, because we feel like we're helpless to resist. And I get that. The world is a scary place. 
people can be hard to love. You can try to be kind or seek reconciliation or make sacrifices, and you can feel like nothing changes. Life, like nothing ever is going to change. Or you can fall into the same sins again, realizing that the things you've been struggling with for years, that you're still struggling with them. That temptation can feel so overpowering, and you don't know how you're going to go on. But the promise of the resurrection is that while you might feel helpless, you aren't. You aren't. Because the same power that reached down into the grave and broke open the gates of hell and brought this dead man back to glorious life, that that power is at work in you. It is yours. The same spirit that gave Jesus life lives inside of you and is pouring life and strength and power into you as well. And look, that does not mean that the fight is going to be easy, all right? You can say that and it sounds like everything should just be a cakewalk then, and it isn't. There will be days when we still feel like we've lost, lots of days, and, and we will still fail and sin every day of our lives. But the point of that is while that might be true, so is the resurrection. And that means that while we will still suffer defeats, in any given moment, we don't have to. Not because we're strong or tough enough, but because God is at work in us. And so in those moments, we can fight and struggle and have hope that while we may fail again, that this time we're not. We don't have to. James 4.7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is our calling. Not to always win or be perfect, but that in the moment when Satan comes and tells us that we can't, that we are already beaten, we say no. No, the life of Christ is at work in me. Be gone. That somehow in the face of that overwhelming truth, the devil will flee. So this is our call this morning. Not simply to believe that the resurrection is true, although it is, and that that is a glorious truth indeed. Not just to believe that it is true, but to take it for ourselves as the thing that characterizes our lives today. To make this historical fact our example and our hope and our power. Or to borrow a phrase I love from another author, to practice resurrection. To practice resurrection. We live in a world full of death. Death at the end of life, death in its middle, death all around us, death in our own hearts. We live in this world full of death, but because of Easter, life is breaking in. Christ's life has broken the power of sin, and it is flowing into us as his people. And our calling is to put our hope in this life, to live it um, out in our own lives, and to find in it the power to pursue Christ's calling. I can't put it better than Eugene Peterson, who uses that phrase, practicing resurrection, as the title of one of his books. He puts it this way. He says, The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus' life. Amen. Christ is risen indeed. Pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, I ask for all of us, your people, that we, as we follow you, our risen Lord, might count ourselves dead to sin and alive in you, that we might put our hope and faith in the great victory that you won in that empty tomb, 
and that we might live out its power. Thank you that you are near us and that through your spirit you are with us and in us. Pray these things in your name, our risen Lord. Amen. Please join with me as we do the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please rise if you're able and join us with the songs of praise. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Set free, my God. My-
Great God and Father, author of light and life, we pray this morning that your light would shine on us, that you might show forth the glory of your goodness in the empty tomb, and that you might show forth the glory of your goodness to our hearts today, that we might see all that is dark and twisted in them, that we might repent and trust even more in your great work in redeeming us at the cross and pouring out your life at the resurrection. God, author of life who created us and gave us life, who poured out life in the, after death on Jesus Christ, who calls us to new life in him as you redeem us, and who will ultimately meet us in life abundant and everlasting when he returns. I pray that we might now go from this place living out your life, that we might go out to battle the death in this world and the death that lives in each of our hearts, hoping in Jesus' resurrection our great hope and strength, that fount of true and everlasting life from which we will forever drink. Pray these things in his name, Christ who is risen. Amen.
Christ's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever block me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I sweet blessing to celebrate the resurrection with you all from Elizabeth and I. It's a joy. As you go from this place, go knowing the goodness of Christ to you. Go with joy in your hearts that he has been raised from the dead and go in the confidence and gladness of knowing that through the Holy Spirit and your trust in him, you participate in his resurrection life. Go forth in that hope and power and hear his blessing as you go. May our great God of peace, who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, bless and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace, now and forevermore. Amen.